0: Hey, good morning, how's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 John 3.23. 1 John 3.23 this morning. While you're turning there, I'm going to start with a little illustration. So my dad, by trade, is a banker. So my whole life, he has uh, primarily been a banker. And uh, he had a guy that worked with him who was an attorney. He was an attorney for that bank. And they were hunting buddies, okay? They used to go out and they used to hunt together. Now, this attorney, his name is David and his lifelong dream in hunting was to shoot a bobcat with a bow, okay? I don't know what you dream about, I don't know what your goals are, but this was his dream. When he would practice shooting his bow with his arrows, he would not use like a a cube to shoot into. He wouldn't use like a deer-shaped target. He had a bobcat target specifically made so he could practice because what he wanted to do more than anything was to shoot a bobcat with a bow. Now, in case you're thinking, Zach, I know nothing about hunting, let me just inform you of a few things here, okay? First of all, you typically don't hunt bobcats. You hunt deer, you hunt turkey, you hunt hogs. Bobcats kind of appear, but uh, you've probably not seen a lot of bobcats mounted in somebody's living room, okay? Additionally, it's very hard to do with a bow. That's why bow season is longer than the hunting season with a firearm, but that is this guy's dream. So one day, my dad and and this guy, this attorney, David, are, are out hunting, not bobcat, and my dad is in one tree stand and David is in another tree stand and they're getting ready and they're hunting, okay? And wouldn't you know it, a bobcat starts walking towards David's tree stand. And my dad is excited for him. He's like, my buddy is finally going to fulfill his lifelong dream. He's going to get to shoot a bobcat. So my dad takes his binoculars and looks over at David's tree stand and he is dead asleep. Okay, Just just asleep. Because a lot of times when you hunt, you have to get up really early, right? And so he is completely asleep. And my dad can't yell to wake him up because that'll scare the bobcat. And this is before you have cell phones. This is back in the day. So what my dad does is he takes his bow and starts launching arrows into David's tree, okay? So just, right? These things have razor tips on them. Hits the tree. He's still asleep. Oh, gosh, I take another one fires again into the tree, and all of a sudden he wakes up, and he turns, and my dad is shooting at him, right? So he wakes up, and he's like, what is happening? Arrows are being shot at me. This is the craziest hunting experience ever. And he's like, what are you doing? And my dad is like, look down. And so David looks, and there's a bobcat. So he takes an arrow, misses, okay? The cat hisses, jumps around, and walks a little bit closer to his stand. Because it's not scared, because it's not loud like a firearm. And so the, the bobcat doesn't know where that's coming from. So he comes a little closer to his stand, arrow number two. <sharp inhale> misses again, okay? And at this point, the bobcat comes even closer to the stand to where he is almost right under his stand. And so my dad's waiting. He's like, he's gonna get him. He's gonna get him on this third shot, and no more shots are fired. And so after the bobcat runs away, my dad gets down from his tree stand, and David gets down from their tree stand, and he's like, why didn't you shoot the bobcat? He was right under you. And David said, I dropped all my arrows. He was so excited because of this. He got that buck fever and he dropped all of his arrows. Now, the funniest part of the story is that David got to fulfill his lifelong dream of shooting at a bobcat. And my dad got to fulfill his lifelong dream at shooting at an attorney. So they're both doing what they love. They're both doing what makes them happy, right? Now, the reason I tell you that story is because when it comes to Christianity, sometimes we, like David, can miss the most important thing. We can miss the the one thing that we've been thinking about and training for and all of that. This guy wanted more than anything else in the world to shoot a bobcat with a bow and then he had one job and he blew it. He missed it. And so the same thing can be true when it comes to Christianity. And so we're gonna see what that is. It's gonna hit us right out of the gate in verse 23. It's very, very important. So let's pray and then we will get into the text. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Christ and ask that you would uh, send the Spirit now to encourage our hearts that we might see wonderful things in your word. I thank you for this text. I pray that it would uh, encourage us who need to be encouraged, that it would rebuke those who need to be rebuked. We thank you that your word often uh, cuts us before it heals us. It often offends us before it transforms us. We thank you and ask that you would bless this time. We wanna ask it all in Christ's name, amen. Let's look at verse 23. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Now, before we do anything, I want you just to see that first word, and. Now, here's why. This is a continuation of what John has already been talking about. We took a little break for Christmas, so I don't want you to forget John's argument up to this point. There have been false teachers that have infiltrated the church, and what John has been doing throughout the letter of 1 John is he's been giving these indicators of true versus false Christians of those who are really Christians versus those who are wolves in sheep's clothing. And he's given us three of them. There's a theological test. Do you believe the right things about Christ? There's a moral test. Have you been transformed by the gospel? You are not saved by your actions, but your actions are evidence of whether or not you have been transformed. Transformed. And then he gives a relational test. Do you love others? Specifically, do you love other Christians? That's what John has been talking about. And last week, Tim did an excellent job explaining that part of the indicator and part of the mark that we're really saved is not just how we feel with our conscience, but rather whether or not we love the brothers and whether or not we are walking in holiness. And so John's gonna continue on that lesson here, but I want you to underline this part of this uh, verse 23 in your Bible. It says this, and this is his commandment, That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. That is one of the most important things you need to know. It is one of the most important things that the Bible is going to say to you. Listen to me. Let me tell you some things that Christianity is not. If you just go up to somebody on the street and you say, are you a Christian? And they say yes. And you say, what does that mean? They will give you all kinds of answers. So you need to hear what Christianity is not about and then we'll talk about what Christianity is about. Christianity is not about being a good person. It's not about being a good person. You can be a kind moral Buddhist. You can be a kind moral atheist. Being a Christian is not about being a good person. Realize that Christianity teaches that there are no good people. There was one good person and we killed him, okay? In Christianity, it's not good people and bad people. It's bad people and Jesus. So we, we believe in a religion that teaches you're not a good person, Okay. Christianity is not about being a very religious person. You'll meet people like that. I'm a very religious person, and it's kind of this weird, ethereal religion, right? So does everybody in here know who Pablo Escobar is? He's this Colombian drug lord, and uh, his cartel, the Medellin cartel, sold so much cocaine that they made $70 million a day, Okay? That's $26 billion a year, and this is decades ago, right? So the money would be even more today. Well, his right-hand man, his number one hitman, is a guy named Yon Velasquez. He goes by Popeye. And his hitman, this, his number one hitman, killed by himself, not just the hits that he ordered, but the, his with his own hands, he killed 257 people, including his own girlfriend, okay? Now, I was listening to an interview with Popeye, and he defined himself as a very religious person and he has a tattoo of Jesus and he often visits the grave of his friend Pablo Escobar, okay? Christianity is not about being a very religious person. It's not about being this weird kind of thing that's popped up in you know, of evangelical culture. It's not this weird cult of niceness. Christianity is not about just being a nice person. Yes, we're to be kind, but there are times where Jesus is not nice, like when he's yelling at people and making whips, There are kinds of times where the prophets are not nice. That's not what Christianity is primarily about. Christianity is not primarily about social action. Now, don't get me wrong. We as Christians are to care for the poor. We as Christians are to love other people. But that's not the primary thing Christianity is about. That's not the gospel. Why? Because an atheist can do that, okay? A Hindu can do that. So that can't be what Christianity is primarily about. Being a Christian is not that you simply believe that God exists. You know who else believes God exists? The devil, okay? I meet people all the time. Are you a Christian? Yes. Well, what does that mean? Well, I believe, I believe in God. And I'm like, so does the, all the demons. So does the devil. There's a lot of people that believe in God. That's not what makes you a Christian. Christianity is not primarily about doing religious rituals. That's what some people think makes you a Christian, right? You think that you're a Christian because you have been baptized or you partake of the Eucharist, you partake of communion or you go to church or you read your Bible. Every heretic cult leader, false teacher, reads the Bible, goes to a church, does religious rituals. That's not what makes you a Christian. Being a Christian is not about trying to stay away from non-sinful parts of culture, okay? It's not trying to create a weird counterculture. Yes, your home should look different than the rest of the world because you don't promote sin, but not because you are against non-sinful parts of culture. That is not, we're to be in the world, not of it. We're not to be not in the world. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is not about you doing your best for Jesus. Maybe you heard that growing up. The pastor always got up and said, get out there and tell people about Jesus and do your best for Jesus and try to do your best. Christianity is about Jesus doing his best for you, not about you doing your best for Jesus. Christianity is not about You showing God how much you love him by how much you're willing to sacrifice. Christianity is not about what's called asceticism. In fact, Paul will say that it's the false teachers that promote harsh treatment of the body and asceticism. It's the false teachers that think that you're holier by abstaining from food or partaking of food or whatever it might be. None of those things are what Christianity is about. Listen to me. What is Christianity about from this text? It's about whether or not you believe in Jesus. It's about whether or not you know Jesus. If you are here today and you're not a Christian and you're thinking, what does God want from me? He wants you to become a Christian. That's why we're called Christians, because we follow Christ. Christianity is about believing in Jesus. It's about being transformed by Jesus. It's about loving Jesus. It's about repenting of your sins and giving them to Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian, that and that alone. All the other things I mentioned, you can do and not be a Christian the defining mark of a Christian, what God wants from you, his commandment to you is that you would believe in Christ. If you are not a Christian, you don't know, whatever it is, that's the message we have for you. That there is one who is eternally God and at the incarnation took on flesh, who has lived the life that you should have lived, who has taken your punishment on the cross, who has been resurrected and is king. And if you will but submit to him, he will grant you a full pardon and citizenship in his kingdom kingdom. That's what this passage is about. That's what Christianity is about. John 6, 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's what God wants from you. He wants you to stop striving. He wants you to stop trying to clean yourself up. He wants you to stop trying to be a better person. He wants you to rest in Jesus. A Christian is something you are way before it's something you do, way before it's something you do. Now, again, verse 23, that first part, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. What does it mean then to believe in Jesus? If being a Christian is all about believing in Jesus, and this is God's just premier commandment for us to believe in Jesus, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does that actually mean? Let me give you five thoughts about this before we move on to the next phrase, okay? First of all, you have to believe in the right Jesus, Believing in a Mormon version or a Jehovah's Witness version or the Muslim conception of Isa, or just thinking he's a good moral prophet will not save you. That's not the real Jesus. That's what the Bible would call other Jesuses. Not that they actually exist. They're mental idols. They're false versions of Jesus. You have to believe in the historic, orthodox, biblical view of Jesus that Christians have believed for 2,000 years that he is one person with two distinct natures, eternally God, takes on humanity at the incarnation, and that he has lived and died and been raised for the forgiveness of your sins. You have to believe in the right Jesus. The second thing you need to know is you must personally trust Jesus, okay? When you use the word faith, or when you talk about believing, there are these famous Latin phrases that are used in church history when it comes to faith, okay? The phrases are in Latin, notitia ascensus and fiducia, Okay, I'm gonna say notitia, ascensus, and fiducia because I speak English, but there are these three different ways of defining faith, okay? Notitia refers to the content of your faith, that to be a Christian, there are propositions that you must believe. If you don't know that Jesus died for your sins, you're not a Christian. If you don't know that Jesus was raised from the dead, you're not a Christian. There are propositions, there's doctrinal content that you must believe, but that doesn't make you saved. Again, the devil believes that doctrinal content. He's terrified of Christ. Christ is his creator, okay, and will also be his judge. So you also have to believe that that content is true. That's a census, that you assent to it being true, okay, that you believe that it's true. Imagine that you're an atheistic New Testament professor. You can tell me exactly what the New Testament says about Christ, but if you don't believe it's true, that's obviously not saving faith. So there's facts you have to believe. You have to believe those facts are true. And the third definition of faith, and this is what the, the, the reformers will push as being very important. You see, the Protestant reformers will say the Catholics have those first two senses of faith. They believe the right doctrine. They have the same view of God, same view of Christ that we do. And they believe that it's true. But some of them, but not, but not all of them, do not have this third type of faith, which is fiducia. What does fiduciary mean? It means trust. It means personal reliance upon. You can't just believe that Jesus existed and believe that it's true, you must put your hope in him. You must put your weight in him. He is like a parachute, and he's the only thing that you're hanging on to. That is personal trust in Christ. There are many, many people that are going to hell that believe Jesus is the Son of God. There are many, many people that are going to hell that believe that that's a true claim. But there's no one going to hell who believes that that's a true claim and also rests in it, also believes that it's for them that actually accepts Jesus. That's different than just knowing facts about him. Number three, it does not mean that you have to have perfect faith, okay? You only have to have a mustard seed. I think we have a tendency, everybody I've ever met that struggles with assurance of salvation, they do so because they think that if they have any doubts or any concerns, they're not really saved, okay? It doesn't work that way. God does not demand that we have perfect faith. That would make salvation up to us. Lost people have 0% faith, If you have anywhere between 1% and 100%, you're a Christian. A work has been done in your heart. You don't have to have perfect faith. You can say, I believe, help my unbelief. Faith is much more of a receptive attitude. I've heard people that don't want to become Christians and they'll say, how can the Bible command that we have faith? That's not something that we can do. And what I say to them is, what that means is that you act as though it's true, whether your heart feels it or not. If you think you can fly... And I say to you, you cannot fly. If you walk off this building, you're going to fall. Faith has very little to do with what your heart is telling you. It has to do with whether or not you decide to walk off the building or not. Acting as though it's true is what the steps God wants you to take as he's transforming your heart. Let me say it clearer. The opposite of faith is not doubt, but disobedience. The opposite of faith is not doubt so much as it is disobedience. We never have perfect faith this side of eternity. We see in a mirror dimly. We could be wrong. We're not, but we could be, okay? You don't have to have perfect faith. You can have broken, imperfect faith in a perfect savior, and he still does all the stuff. He still does all the the stuff. The fourth thing you need to know, faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. It's not something that you conjure up. It's not as though that I'm not saved by works, but if I do the good job of believing hard enough, then God will save me. No, 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 no. No, 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 faith is a gift. Even the the faith you have comes from God. Even the repentance you have comes from God. God does all the stuff. He is the saver, not you. We are monergistic, one energy. God does it. It's not this cooperation between God and man. And then the fifth thing, you're not saved by your faith. You're saved by Jesus. Yes, your faith is the conduit, but you need to know that you're saved by a person, not by something that you do. Your faith will be imperfect, okay? It is Jesus that does the saving. You can rest. He's not a liar. Anybody that comes to him, he'll by no means cast out. That includes you. One of the things I love doing in the summer is I love taking my little kids to the pool. Well, let me rephrase that. I love the idea of taking my little kids to the pool. Because in my mind, here's how it plays out. I'm just laying by the pool working on my sweet tan, right? Drinking something out of a coconut, and my kids will just play, and they won't drown, and they won't need anything, and it will be so relaxing, okay? It's not that way in real life. You get there, and then they have to go to the bathroom, and then you have to change them, and then you have to put on sunscreen while they whine, and then one of their floaties starts to deflate, and they start sinking like the Titanic, and then they're running by the pool, and it's all this crazy stuff, okay? But one game I do always love is I have my kids stand at the edge of the pool, and I say, jump to me, okay? My son's 18. I'm kidding. He's not. He's, uh, he's four, okay? He's four, and my daughter's two. And I have him stand on the edge of the pool, and I say, jump to me. And what do they say? But I'm scared. Well, you don't need to be scared. I'm going to catch you. Are you going to let my head go underwater? If you keep asking questions, yes, but no, I'm, I'm going to catch you. I'm really good at catching. I'm not a liar. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm here to maximize your joy. Jump to me. No, I'm still scared. So what do I do? I just grab them and pull them in the pool. At no point was it up to them. They were going to get into the pool because I wanted them to get into the pool and I'm a good dad. And if I, being evil and sinful and wicked, know how to shepherd my kids and make sure they don't drown, that's what God does in saving us. They'd have a lot more fun if they would just trust me. And in the same way, we'd walk in a lot more joy if we would just trust God. But God is still faithful to his promises regardless of how much we do and don't trust well. So here's my question for you. Do you know Christ? That's my question. I'm not asking, did you pray a prayer when you were six? I'm not asking, have you been baptized, okay? Like Simon the magician who ends up being a creep. I'm not asking if you've been in church or whatever. I care very little about your past. I wanna know, do you trust Christ right now? Faith is continual. Do you still trust Christ? Are you still walking in repentance? That's what I want to know because this is God's command for you. Let's look at the next phrase in verse 23 and love one another just as he has commanded us. Now, here's what you need to understand. These are not two separate commands that you need to do to be saved. It's not like to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus and then spend all this time doing a good job loving people, and if you don't, you'll go to hell, okay? That's not it, that would make it works-based. Loving others is an overflow of a heart that has been transformed by God okay, to say it as the way the Gospels would say it. The greatest command is to love God. We know that because Jesus says, wait for it, this is the greatest command. The second greatest command is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, okay? These ideas are always linked. In Genesis 3, when mankind rebels against God, there's this separation. The creature has rebelled against its eternal creator and so everything has become broken and what happens shortly after the fall in Genesis 3? Cain kills Abel. Because when there's disunity between man and God, there's also disunity between man and our fellow man. So when that relationship is restored between God and man, now all of a sudden we have grace and we have love for one another. That's how that works, okay? So so let me say it this way. Mankind is intrinsically wired for community. This is why it's not good for Adam to be alone. We, by nature, the way God originally created us before the fall, would want to love one another. We're designed to be in community. That's why we take felons and put them in solitary confinement. Grown up time out. We are so wired for community that we take away community as punishment for criminals. That's how we're wired. This is why when you see somebody at the supermarket or on the road, it's so exciting if you know them. Have you ever noticed this? I realized this 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 week. I was driving in the car and my wife pulled up beside me. I didn't know that she was out on the road. And it was like the most exciting thing. I'm like, you're my wife. I see her every day. We're both driving. How crazy is this, right? Or you see a coworker at Target and it's so exciting. You're like, what are you doing here? That's what you always say. What are you doing here? You go to, I go to Tar- I thought you lived at work, right? It's exciting. We're wired for community. We're wired to love one another. But because of sin, we often don't love one another. We would rather use somebody. We would rather take advantage of them. We would rather sexually abuse them. We'd rather steal from them. We'd rather step over them to grow in our work career, whatever it is. We don't love others because of sin. So when your heart has been redeemed by Christ, there is this then desire. Your heart changes for those who God has created. These are not really two commands. This is one command that flows forth from the other one. Those who believe in Jesus obey his commands to love others. John 13:34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. John 15:12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. John 15:17. Notice this commandment language. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Okay? So if we're commanded to love one another, we have to ask what does that actually mean? Because in our culture, the word love is one of the most misunderstood terms, I think, in our entire culture. Not only do we use it flippantly, right? Like I love my wife and I love buffalo wings, often in that order, right? But we also, our culture defines love this way. Uh, if, If I affirm and encourage whatever makes you happy or whatever you want to do, that's the way that our culture defines love. So we need to spend some time talking about what this commandment is. If we're to love others, but we don't know what that means, we've not been obedient to God's word. So let's talk about what love is not and let's talk about what love is. First of all, love is not a feeling or an emotion, biblically speaking. When a 13-year-old boy wants to be with a 60-year-old man, I don't deny that they may have strong emotions. I don't deny that they may have strong feelings, but that is not love biblically. You cannot love a mistress. I know guys in uh, being in ministry where you uh, minister to people and there's been adultery and whatever and a guy leaves his wife for his mistress because he quote unquote loves her. No doubt in my mind that he has strong feelings for her. No doubt in my mind that he has strong emotions for her but that's not love biblically defined. And if you wanna make it even a little more theological, love cannot be defined as a feeling because God in classical Christian theology is impassable, okay? He is not acted upon, You do not give him good and bad days. He's not an emotional teenager. He has no emotions or feelings. He doesn't feel love. He is love. He doesn't feel joy. He is joy. In the same way that the sun is hot, but it doesn't feel its own hotness, we feel it. So God is his attributes. So love cannot be defined as emotion. What else is love not? Love is not what society says is loving. So sometimes people define love what a majority of the culture thinks is loving right? So abortion is loving to a mother or something like that. Or, uh, you know, telling somebody to stay in a difficult marriage is unloving because that just seems so mean. That's not what love is defined. Why? Because culture can be off on their definition of what's good and bad. See also, and you can just Wikipedia this later if you need to, Nazi Germany, okay? So that can't be what defines love. Love is also not, and this is really big in evangelical churches, it's not tweeting out how woke and progressive you are but not actually helping people it's not social outrage where you're talking about how we need to help the poor as you send that text from your iphone made by a child right that is not love love is actually helping people Love is not doing what the Pharisees do just in the 21st century, where you show how big your phylacteries are and you make long prayers in public so people see that you're holy. Love is actually having people over to your home, actually caring for them. Love is walking in truth. Love is not affirming things that make people happy or things that they like. Do you know how I know? Because sometimes we like things that are bad. Do you understand? Every time a serial killer is arrested and they talk to his neighbors, what do the neighbors always say? He was such a nice guy. He was so happy all the time. Always smiling, always waving. Of course he was happy. He was doing what he loved. He was living his reality. He was taking the thing he most enjoyed and doing it all the time, murdering people, okay? Those cannot be the definition of love Biblically, what is the biblical definition of love? We've given it to you a few weeks ago. I wanna give it here again. Love is this, doing what the Bible says is best for someone, even if it costs you. Doing what the Bible says is best for someone, even if it costs you. Notice the three parts of this definition. First of all, the Bible gets to define what love is, not us, not us, not our culture, not how we feel, not our, our being tossed to and fro by the wind of doctrine. Notice that love is doing what's best for somebody. Look at me, not what they most want you to do, not what they think is best for them, but what's actually best for them. And sometimes this will even cost you. Not always, sometimes helping people's easy, but sometimes it will cost you. Let me say it this way. There is a sense in which we as Christians should be treating all other Christians a little bit like they're our children. Here's what I mean by that, not that you're being pejorative to them and you rock them to sleep, that's not what I mean. What I mean is this, I will do what's best for my kids, not what they think is best. Sometimes that makes them mad, but it doesn't matter. Because I love them, I tell them when to go to bed, I tell them what they can eat, I tell them what they can do or what's too dangerous, I set those standards and I do what's best for them whether they like it or not. In the same way, we as Christians should be doing that for one another. We should be giving everyone what's best for them whether they like it or not. Because we're sinners, we often don't like what is best for us. This is the command to really love one another, to do what's best for them as defined in the Bible and know that this will sometimes cost you like it cost Christ, okay? Verse 24a, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. Okay, now let me explain what's going on with this keeping the commandment. It's not saying this. It's not saying if you do these good works of keeping God's commandments... Then you will be saved. That would be to read this passage backwards. Here's the idea: You are transformed by faith in Christ alone. Then the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, comes and dwells inside of you and gives you. Uh, you have these new motivations. If you want to back up, actually, the Holy Spirit wakes you up first, regenerates you, then you believe in Christ, and the Holy Spirit continues to sanctify and grow you. That then causes you to love others. It causes you to walk in holiness, and then those righteous acts serve as further evidence that God dwells in you. You can know you're a Christian by trusting Christ, but you can also look at your actions and see if your actions show whether or not you've been transformed. That's kind of the flow of this passage. One of the things that we will do if we don't know you and you're becoming a member here at Parkway is we have what's called an affirmation meeting that you have to go through, okay? Now, in that meeting, we're trying to do two things. One, we're trying to get to know you. We don't want you to just be a number here at Parkway. We want to actually know you and know who you are and hang out with you. But we're also trying to make sure that you're a Christian. We believe in regenerate church membership. We want to make sure that you're saved. And so sometimes we ask difficult questions like this. Can you give me some proof and some evidence that you're a Christian? Well, can't you just go by my profession? No, every heretic, false teacher, and wolf who've ever existed has a profession of faith. The Bible would tell us not just to take a profession. It would tell us to judge those in the church. It would tell us that we know people by their fruit. And so what I'm asking you is what fruit can you give me? Can you show me that you love Christ? Can you show me that you hate your sin? Can you show me that when you read the Bible, God speaks to you, it's his word? Can you show me that you uh, are actually convicted when you sin, not just that you hate when you got caught? These are the kind of things that we're looking for because those who've been regenerated keep God's commandments, keep God's commandments. Now look at the last part of uh, 24a here where it says that whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, okay? Let's talk about what those mean, okay? The Apostle Paul will use the phrase, he uses it a lot in Greek, it's in Christo, in Christ, okay? And he will say, in Christ this, in Christ this, in Christ this. This is the idea. I cannot fly, but if I'm in a plane, I can fly. I cannot go 70 miles an hour, but if I'm in a car, I can go 70 miles an hour. I cannot be seen as perfect, which is what God demands, by the way, not pretty good. I cannot be seen as perfect, holy, righteous, or spotless unless I'm in Christ. It's like the status, okay? I can't fly an airplane because I'm not in the Air Force. Like, I can just show up on the tarmac and be like, I'm taking this plane. They're like, who are you? I'm like, don't worry about it. How'd you get on the tarmac? I'm very sneaky, and I just try to get in the plane. It doesn't work. I have to be in the Air Force. I have to have this status given to me, not to mention the training to actually pilot it, before I can do that. Well, we as sinners do not get to come before a holy God. God owes us nothing but damnation, But if we are in him, if we are in Christ, then all of a sudden we have this status because Christ has the status. The status of Christ is conferred to you when you are in Christ, when you believe in him. Christ is spotless. He's perfect. He's holy. He's loved. Everything is good. And when you become a Christian, you die and your status is now as one in Christ. To say it another way, the father never sees you without his Jesus glasses on. And most of the times we beat ourselves up and we feel far from God, it's because we're looking at ourselves apart from Christ. How's Zach doing in and of myself? I'm a scoundrel. How is Zach doing in Christ? Well, then there is no more Zach, that I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but he lives in me. And the life I live by in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what happens. You die and your identity is as one in Christ. Now, what does it mean that God abides in you? Well, this is the idea. It's what, does, what is it or who is it that drives you? So when you're lost, when you're not a Christian, you know what you're driven by? Everybody that's not a Christian, self-worship, selfishness, wanting to be your own God. It's my life, it's my body, it's my career, it's my dreams, this is my time, me, 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 me. We're just a bunch of me monsters. That's who we are before Christ. When you become a Christian, though, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, the third person of the Trinity, and now you have a new engine, You have a new driver. Your desires are different. You've shifted from a self-focused worldview to a God-focused worldview. So there's a sense in which you dwell in God. There's a sense in which he dwells in you in different ways, in different ways, okay? Look at verse 24b. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Notice the Trinitarian reference here, by the way. Notice that you have the Trinity. You have the one who wants you to believe in the son. That's the father. You have the son, and now you have the spirit. John is a thoroughgoing Jew. He is a thoroughgoing monotheist. We do not believe in three gods. There's only one God. Even when angels sometimes are called gods, it means it in a different sense. It just means something like heavenly beings. There's only one capital G God. There's only one God. John would have grown up saying what's called the Shema, that Jews would say every day. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. John would say that all the time, and yet when he talks about the one God of Israel, he identifies this one God as Father, Son, and Spirit. Only one God, only one being, only one mind, one will, one God yet somehow there is some diversity somehow there is a distinctness of person within the Godhead now look at 24b again and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us okay to be a Christian is to be one who is spirit filled now let me define that term though because that term has been radically abused by the Pentecostal and the charismatic movement okay I've had people ask me if I'm a spirit-filled Christian as if there's any other kind I've had people ask, is your church spirit-filled? I saw a spirit-filled study Bible the other day, and I'm like, I'm not touching that. I'm not gonna open that. I don't know what's gonna happen if I open it. It'll be some sort of like Pandora's box. I'm not gonna deal with it, okay? So how some people define being filled with the spirit, it's good to be filled with the spirit, but they define it in the wrong way. So here's some things it doesn't mean to be spirit-filled. It doesn't mean that you have to speak in tongues. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12. Let me look at my reference here. I don't wanna misquote it. 1 Corinthians 12, 30, he says this explicitly. He's asking, he says, are all prophets... Do all speak in tongues? Do all work miracles? And in Greek, the answer is no. Greek has a way of asking a question that expects a no answer. But even if you didn't know Greek, you surely don't think we're all apostles. The entire point of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians is that if you had all the gifts, you wouldn't need the church, okay? And so not all Christians will have all the gifts. No Christians will have all the gifts. You need the body. 1 Corinthians is not a book on how to use spiritual gifts. It's on how not to use spiritual gifts. That's not what it means to be spirit-filled. To be spirit-filled doesn't mean you have to experience all this miraculous stuff all the time. Forget the fact that apart from Christ, in the Bible, there are only a few miracles that happen over thousands of years. I have met people who define themselves as being spirit-filled that act like this is just commonplace. Like every morning they just get up, they have breakfast with angels as they levitate and pray in Latin or something like this. That's not what it means to be spirit-filled. It doesn't mean that you have to hear God speak in your head apart from the Bible. That's a great way to fall into heresy. It's a great way to confuse your thoughts with God's. It doesn't mean that in a worship service, you have to flop on the ground and bark like a dog and go crazy, okay? God is a God of order. That's not what it means. Some of the most wicked people I've ever met will define themselves sometimes as being quote-unquote spirit-filled, okay? That's not what it means. Do you want to know what it really means to be spirit-filled? You wanna know what it really means to be a Christian? You wanna know what it really means to be a godly disciple? It means this. It looks like being someone who holds to correct doctrine. That's a mark of having the Spirit. It looks like being someone who confesses their sins and the things that they're tempted towards to other people. That's what a godly person looks like. That's what a disciple looks like. That's what a Spirit-filled person looks like. Someone who confesses their sins one to another. It looks like someone who is kind, patient, and emotionally stable. You know how there are some people that when they enter a room, it gets more chaotic? And then there are other people when they enter a room, it gets more peaceful. That is a mark of someone who walks in godliness. What does it look like to be a spirit-filled person? It looks like reading your Bible every day for 50 years. It looks like praying every day for 50 years. It looks like being able to laugh at yourself. You show me somebody that can't, make a, can't take a joke, somebody that uh, can't laugh at themselves, that will not be a godly person. You see, when you believe that Jesus is great, you don't have to be great. You might have noticed that here at Parkway, we make a ton of jokes. We make fun of staff, we make fun of people, we make fun of culture, we make fun of all kinds of things. We never, though, make fun of God. We never mock God, we fear God. To make fun of God would be irreverent, but to laugh at ourselves is godly. Laughter in church is the sound of self-righteousness leaving the body, that's what it is. It looks like someone who can laugh at themselves. What does it look like to be spirit-filled? It looks like being a faithful member of a church. It looks like getting together with others to pray, read the Bible, and make disciples. It looks like befriending lost people so you can share the gospel with them. What does it look like to be spirit filled? It looks like fighting sin and denying yourself certain things that you want. It looks like being content with what you have, even if you only have a little. It looks like serving your neighbor. What does it look like to be spirit filled? It looks like serving others or teaching the Bible on your own, even when you don't have a platform with which to do it. I've met people and they say, Zach, I've been given this gift, I've been given this talent and I would like to use it, and I say, great, go use it, and they say, well, I need this classroom and this name tag, and I need you to promote it from the stage, and I need you to tweet it out, and I say, wait a second, I'm sorry. If you need all those things before you can use your gift, you don't have that gift. If you are gifted or talented in some way, use it for God's glory. You don't need a stage to do that, okay? When I've not been in ministry, you know what I do? I just start Bible studies at whatever secular job I have, because if I'm called to teach, I'm called to do that regardless of title, okay? It looks like, what does it look like to be spirit-filled? It looks like having a family that spiritually flourishes because of your influence. Is your family better off or worse off because you're in it? That one's convicting. That one is convicting. It looks like not adding commands or taking away commands from scripture. It looks like not being a coward or caving into cultural social pressure. It looks like using your money, your time, your talents, and your giftings to the best of your ability because you are living your whole life For God. For some reason, Christians have made some good movies, but a lot are bad. We've made some good music, but a lot is bad. We should be the best at everything, not because of self-exaltation, but because we are honoring God with what we do. Whatever our hand finds to do, we do it with all our might. It looks like having, lastly, an unshakable joy because you know Christ loves you no matter how much you still sin and no matter how tough life becomes. No matter how tough life becomes. I have a buddy who is a uh, charismatic pastor and I heard him say one time, it was great, he said, I don't care how high you jump in worship as long as when your feet hit the ground, you walk like Jesus. Okay, It's great, great little phrase. Okay, So yes, it's true that the way we know we're Christians is whether or not we have the spirit, but that's actually the primary emphasis in Romans where Paul talks about having the spirit. That we've been given the spirit by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That's not, that's true here in 1 John, but I want you to notice something. Look at the very beginning of the verse and by this. Do you see that there? That's not just pointing forward to the Spirit. That's pointing back at this love for one another and this walking in holiness, okay? So yes, having the Spirit is a way that you know that you're a Christian, but part of what the Spirit does is he points out to you areas in your life that show whether or not you have been redeemed. That's part of his job. That's what he does. It's kind of like, you ever seen a, a 3D movie, right? Like you go to see a 3D movie, And when you go in, they give you those little paper glasses. One lens is red and one lens is blue. And you put it on. And when you watch the movie, it makes the movie pop out at you. It's actually a lot of fun, okay? I was in a 3D movie one time. And it's about 30 minutes into the movie. And I'm like, this is great. I'm looking around at everybody in the the theater because they all have their glasses on. Except one guy to the side of me. He doesn't have any glasses on. And he's just doing this. And I'm thinking, it's been 30 minutes, At what point do you look around and see you're the only one not wearing glasses? At what point do you not go out to the manager and say, hey, the movie's really blurry? And they say, yeah, that's because it's a 3D movie and you're not wearing the glasses, right? But he's just straining the whole time. Can't tell if it's a good movie or not, okay? What the Spirit does is he acts like those 3D glasses. When you look upon your life, when you look upon your actions, when you look upon whether or not you love people, what the Spirit does is he confirms to your spirit whether or not you're really a Christian whether or not there needs to be areas of repentance, whether or not you have trusted Christ. So yes, the spirit is evidence that you're a Christian. If you don't have the spirit, you're not a Christian. But part of what the spirit does is he shows and reminds you of whether or not you're walking in holiness. The false teachers that John is writing against can claim that they have the spirit. How does John know that he and his followers really have the spirit? Because they live a transformed life. They live a transformed life. So here's how I want to end the sermon today. I simply want to ask this question do you know Christ? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? Because if you have not, here's good news for you. You can. You can. If you came in here as a non-Christian, you can walk out as a Christian. If you came here as a doubting Christian, Zach, I'm not really sure if I'm saved, you can walk out knowing that you are, because it has nothing to do with how hard you believe it. Some of you need to accept that you're accepted. Some of you need to rest. Some of you need to just admit, God, I don't have the kind of faith in you you require, so you're just gonna have to save me despite my lack of faith. That's how he always saves us, by the way. You'll just walk in a lot more joy if you know it. So what I wanna do is I'm gonna pray, and I'm not gonna ask you to do anything weird, raise your hand or anything. I'm just gonna pray, and if you need to put your faith in Jesus, would you do so in your seat? Would you think in your mind to yourself, Jesus, save me. I need you to save me, I need forgiveness, I need healing, I need mercy, I don't know if I'm a Christian, whatever it might be. And Jesus has promised in John 6 that anybody who comes to me, he'll by no means cast out. Zach, how do I know if I'm elect? This is a church that believes in Calvinism. How do I know if God has elected me? If you have faith in Christ, you are elect, okay? There's no such thing as someone with real faith in Christ that God damns, okay? If you have faith in Christ, that is evidence that God has chosen you. He chooses you first. You choosing him is just the reverse. It's just he already did the stuff. You believing is evidence that God has already given you mercy and grace, Let me give you just a moment to however you need to sync up with God there in your chair. Whether it's repentance, whether it's thanking him, whether it's asking for salvation, whatever it is, let me give you a few minutes and then I'll pray and the men helping serve communion will come to the front. Almighty God, we thank you that you're gracious. We thank you that you've sent the second person of the Trinity to become a human while remaining God to redeem us. We thank you that you've given the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, by whom we can cry out, Abba, Father, that you have taken these little creatures you made out of the dirt and you've adopted us. You've called us sons and daughters by adoption despite the fact that we're sinners and we're broken and we're just creatures. We confess that you are better than us. We confess that you are greater than us. We confess that you are infinite and we are not. We confess that you are all-knowing and we are not. We confess that everything belongs to you, that the reason we have to obey is because we did not make ourselves. Everything belongs to you. Nothing belongs to us, and yet you've given us so many gifts so freely. We ask as we partake of communion now that you would bless this time. In Christ's name, amen.